If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. These are tombs which we, we know must have existed and yet are lost to us today, but possibly not lost forever. So um, so the detective work is in, is in establishing where they might be. That was Chris Norton discussing lost tombs of ancient Egypt. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the first History Extra podcast of 2019. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with the Egyptologist, author and broadcaster, Dr Chris Norton. His latest book discusses the possible locations for the tombs of some of the most famous figures from Egypt's past, including the likes of Cleopatra and Alexander the Great. Our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne, met up with Chris recently to find out more. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Chris Norton. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Pleasure. Um, So your new book, Searching for the Lost Tombs of Egypt... You turn historical detective, is it fair to say? Yes, I, yeah, I suppose it is. Um, it's a book which explores the possibility that um, a number of tombs, which we know must have existed um, and belong to individuals, mo- most of whom will be will be generally quite well known. I think people like Alexander the Great, Cleopatra, Nefertiti. Um, to, th- these are tombs which we, we know must have existed and yet are lost to us today, but possibly not lost forever. So, um, so the detective work is in is in establishing where they might be, um, and in trying to generate a bit of excitement about the possibility that they may be discovered at some point. So, if these tombs are out there, um, what could they contain? What could be in them? Well, I suppose in some ways the the starting point there is is the tomb of Tutankhamun, which is the archetypal, um, sensational, archaeological discovery of any kind, but it is it, it, it was the almost intact um, tomb of a pharaoh. Um, so, so I think in all these cases, the, the best case scenario would be that we would be looking at very finely decorated tombs, um, large, complex, and then within them, of course, you would expect the body of the deceased. This is if they're intact. And then grave goods, and again, you know, best case scenario, very spectacular grave goods. So for want of a better word, lots of treasure. You talk about in the book being personally involved in some kind of exciting discoveries. Mm. Um, Most of us have not had the chance to go into an ancient Egyptian tomb. What is that experience like? 
Well, I mean, it varies. Um, it varies according to the circumstances, of course. Um, I, I mean, some teams are some teams are open. Some teams are very much on the tourist trail, and uh, sometimes those experiences are kind of lacking in magic. But but putting that aside, um, I, I mean, I've been fortunate as uh, working as an archaeologist in Egypt to have been involved in. Um, in 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 ongoing projects which have which have been revealing you know new things um and one discovery if you like in particular which i wasn't involved wasn't involved in the work but i i i was i was working nearby and was fortunate enough to go and see was um the newly discovered tomb or maybe not tomb um which is given the number kv63 king's valley 63 so it, this is a, a very simple cutting in the rock let's say in the valley of the kings um, a square shaft um, terminating uh, at the bottom in a short very short passageway and then two i think chambers undecorated not very large clearly not the kind of thing that you would expect of a, of a royal tomb that was designed to receive the burial of a king those are generally far more complicated monuments much much larger decorated etc etc um what was really thrilling about this despite all of that is that although it was clear it had not been used as a tomb, a cache of ancient material was discovered undisturbed in these two chambers. Um, and, you know, if I tell you that this was um, some seven coffins, 20-ish jars, um, you might think, well, yeah, it's not quite the same as a whole ton of gold and statues and chariots and, you know, the kind of thing that we have in mind when we think about undisturbed tombs. But to see a deposit of ancient material, almost in a kind of jumble, actually, not in a very sort of well-organised deposit, but it, almost in a kind of a heap, almost in a pile, but in exactly the position they had been left in, in probably the later 18th dynasty, probably around the time of Tutankhamun, in fact, was a thrill that I was not prepared for, I have to say, when I saw it. Um I was a bit blasé. Wasn't the Valley of the Kings and Undisturbed Tombs was not anything to do with my research at the time. And I thought, oh, well, yeah, much more interested in Twenty Fifth Dynasty inscriptions, actually. Um, and yet, when I saw it, it was really like I can own the. I think the best way I can describe it is to say it was like meeting a meeting one of your heroes. Almost, it was like meeting a, a famous person that you've spent ages thinking about and you really admire but have never seen in the flesh before. And it was like I was looking at ancient Egypt and I just couldn't, I was kind of rooted to the spot. Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to approach it. I didn't really answer to myself. Um, I think I describe it in the book as a kind of Mary Celeste of Egypt. Everything was in place as if they had literally just left them there five minutes ago and were, and were coming back and nothing had been moved. And when you think about the enormity of that span of time, we're talking almost three and a half thousand years for those things to have just been sat there quietly waiting and then there they are. I mean, it was an extraordinarily moving and thrilling experience. What it must have been like for somebody like Howard Carter or, or the other people who have come down onto um, intact or more or less intact tombs to find, you know, the burial of a, of a king or another high-status individual undisturbed, I mean... I almost, you know, almost makes my sort of heart race just thinking about it. It's, um, that's as good as it gets, I think. That's what, you know, that's got to be why we do this kind of thing, right? Did the ancient Egyptians do things to 
hide their tombs to prohibit robbery? What kind of mechanisms were in place? They certainly did make every effort to um, to try to stop tombs from being violated. I mean, that was the, that was the thing. Um, so there is a conflict, in fact, from the from the very beginning um, between the desire to mark the burial of the individual, particularly you know, anyone of any importance, with originally just a kind of a mound, not much more than a kind of a heap of stones, which ultimately develops into um, much more regular straight-sided uh, platforms. Those develop into pyramids. And, you know, hey, presto, after a few centuries, you've got um, the Great Pyramid, the tallest building in the world for over 4,000 years. Um, there's a tension between wanting to make a mark like that and say, hey, look, everyone, how powerful this person was and how important. And... Um, not uh, encouraging um, unsavoury types to come along and get at whatever treasures might be inside. And it's clear that that was a headache for the Egyptians from the very beginning. So the story of the various measures um, taken uh, over over the centuries to try and prevent robbers from from getting at the tombs um, is a very, very interesting story in itself. But uh, and they, they vary from um, hiding the burial, if not the monument. Um, so hiding them, sort of, you know, deep underground, uh, in, you know, in completely and utterly sealed shafts at the very beginning, to um, sealing passageways with huge, they would have hoped, completely immovable, impenetrable blocking stones, um, to um, excavating what we call wells along entrance passageways, so, you know, to, 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 to prevent robbers from um, from continuing the passageway. So this is the kind of thing where if you were walking along, not suspecting the floor would suddenly um, disappear beneath you, you know, you, you, you'd take a tumble and, um, and be stuck. Uh, and then um, kind of magical protection measures as well. So you have inscriptions warding people off, you know, should you violate this tomb, you'll be cursed forever. During the 13th dynasty, robbery had obviously become a massive headache at this point. And from one, we're still looking at pyramids at this point, from one pyramid to another, the internal architecture becomes more and more and more and more complicated, almost kind of labyrinth-like. And it's as though the architects were trying to um, to try to, to, to get the any robbers to completely lose themselves inside blind, blind corridors, corridors leading nowhere, twisting corridors, um, burial chambers concealed beneath the floor, and they also came up with an absolutely ingenious method for completely containing the most important part of the burial, so the body, um, the canopic jars, which which house the mummified internal organs, um, and the other most sort of precious items of burial equipment, encasing those in a almost completely solid block of hard stone, granite or quartzite. So you have a, an enormous what looks like a kind of bathtub, but on a massive scale, all sides but the kind of ceiling side, if you like, com- completely made of a single piece of impenetrable hard stone. And then the the uh, the top, the ceiling, if you like, is 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 sealed with a, another sequence of massive blocks of the same hard stone. And these are lowered into place um, very carefully, very precisely by a method we call sand hydraulics or sand sandrolics, which is a complicated process where you have one final ceiling block standing on some wooden posts. 
and the wooden posts themselves are standing on a kind of chimney, if you like, filled with sand. You remove the sand from the chimney, the wooden blocks descend into the chimney, the ceiling block comes down completely flush onto the burial chamber, and it's impossible to reverse. That's the idea anyway. Impossible to get fingers or a rope or whatever in between the cracks in the ceiling stone. The only way the robbers they hoped would have of getting in would be to smash the stone, but you can't because it's several feet thick and made of the hardest stone available. And yet these tombs are all robbed, you know. Uh, so, yes, in answer, very long answer to your question. Yes, ingenious okay. methods, and yet they almost never succeed. So it feels like museums across the world are already jam-packed full of incredible artefacts from ancient Egypt. Is there something about Egypt which makes it kind of uniquely rich in the archaeology that has been available? Yes, um, I think there are lots of reasons actually for it. Um, Obviously, perhaps first and foremost, Egypt was one of the um, richest uh, of any of the cultures of the ancient world, and it had access to um, highly prized materials, most notably perhaps gold, and it had access to craftsmen who were capable of working a range of materials to extremely high standards. Other than that, though, probably the, the next most important factor, equally important, is that the um, the Egyptians generally buried their dead um, in the desert away from the uh, the cultivated land on the banks of the Nile and, uh, and in the delta. And in the desert, the material survives extremely well. The, the conditions for preservation, particularly of organic materials like wood, um, human tissue are extremely good. And so a lot has survived. Um, an awful lot hasn't survived. We should say that as well. So you're right that museums are absolutely jam-packed full of things. Having said that, uh, it's probably fair to say that we've, you know, we've lost far more of um, what there would have been um, than we've uh, than we than what we still have. But you know, on balance, thinking about thinking about the tombs in the book, um, I, I wouldn't have been able to write this book if if there wasn't a chance, a fair chance, um, that some of these tombs might yet be found. They might be found in a state w- which preserves some of that kind of material, even if they're not intact. So how would you go about if you were if you were after one of these tombs um that you're you're kind of weighing up the evidence about in the book where on earth do you start with looking for them or or speculating on where they might be? There is there is good evidence um for for the location of the tombs in all cases. And that what the kind of evidence varies from one tomb to another. Uh, So in some cases, we're we're sort of left with not much more than, say, circumstantial evidence. So, for example, I deal with the tombs of the kings of the 26th dynasty, which is is a kind of high watermark uh, period in Egyptian history, during which we know very high standards in art and architecture were, were reached, and yet we've got no real hard evidence for these tombs at all. But we know those kings were based at a city called Sais in the western delta of Egypt. The chances of those tombs being anywhere other than somewhere in that capital city, very, very slim. Um, so so sometimes, you know, you can just deduce that, the, you know, we, we know where the kings were living, so the cemetery's got to be somewhere in that area. We know, for example, at the time of the 26th dynasty, that the general practice was for high-status burials to be placed within temple enclosures. 
So once you've got the temple, and actually it's science, that's in itself is tricky. We don't know where that was. Um, but you, you know, there, there are theories around where that might be. You then can begin to sort of hone in on, on, the, on the location. You might then also have uh, textual evidence. So in, in lots of cases, tombs uh, like the ones discussed in the book become markers in the landscape. So you might get a text from a couple of centuries later saying, and I did such and such a thing. I bought a plot of land or I, I bought a nice place to, to bury my, my mother. And don't you know, it was in the region of the tomb of King, whoever. The other thing, which is a very important component part of the book, is that in, in all these cases, archaeologists in the last couple of centuries have had a jolly good go at looking for these tombs. And they've developed their own theories about where they are. Um, in some cases, uh, it's, of course, it's in the nature of the archaeologist to be quite sort of scientific and cautious. And in some cases, um, you know, they weren't willing to commit to anything other than just, well, this is, you know, evidence that suggests that somewhere, you know, we might be close to. Others are absolutely convinced that, you know, they just need to do a little bit more digging in this area. And, you know, next year we'll definitely find this tomb. So so there are some really great stories um, to be told about these uh, these characters, these archaeologists, what they found, and and a lot of what I'm doing in the book is assessing what they found and assessing their own theories, um, and that's especially good fun where um, where you you have the case of a tomb where there are com- competing theories because then you've got things to weigh up, and it's also finally it's also the case um, sometimes that tombs have been claimed tombs which have been discovered. Um, but in a, um, let's say, kind of sorry state, undecorated, robbed, completely empty of all burial equipment, you know, in the body as well. And it's been claimed um, on one basis or another that that, that, that that is the tomb of such and such um, without hard evidence. But let's say, you know, it's in roughly the right place. It's a big grand tomb. The architecture looks right. It's in the area of known royal tombs. Could it be? Um, so there are a lot of cases where we don't have the absolutely the clinching evidence. You can't absolutely close the case, but there are people who have said, I am sure this is it. In order to launch a dig, get a team together and get the funding, what kind of level of evidence are you going to need in order to merit that? Archaeological projects... Um, in Egypt, generally these days, it's not the way things are done to say, I'm looking for this very specific thing and I'm going to start digging in this place in order to find that very thing. Archaeology is is a much more sort of a coldly scientific pursuit these days. And so um, an application would be more likely to begin, this looks like a very interesting area, we already know this, um, with a little bit of survey and excavation work or whatever, you know, we're likely to find um, such and such or such and such. And the Ministry of Antiquities, which is the organisation which um, stewards this kind of thing and looks after archaeological sites, is very careful to make sure that applications are put in on the very highest scientific standards and by the right people, you know, who are going to approach things in the right way. But they're also obliged to um, to give um, due consideration to, you know, what will happen if something is found Archaeological sites, which are still well, sites and monuments which are still buried, are afforded a degree of protection by by the soil and sand around them. And once you dig them up, they're exposed and um, exposed to the elements, exposed to 
um, unsavory types who might take things away for their own personal gain. Um, so, so again, you know, all these all these things come into consideration as well. So it's it's no easy thing. You mentioned earlier about the Egyptologists of the past and looking at their theories for the book, and there is something incredibly romantic about this idea of somebody on a on an obsessive mission to find the one tomb. When you were researching the book, who were some of the figures of Egyptology rather than ancient Egyptians that you found most kind of fascinating or colourful? Uh, well, I mean. Um... It, it might seem like an obvious uh, answer, but um, Howard Carter naturally crops up in the book very often. Um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, the tomb of Tutankhamun, that discovery is the starting point. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's the exemplar it's the, of, of, um, of an archaeological discovery, but very particularly of the discovery of um, intact, high-status royal tombs. Um and Carter spent most of certainly the second half of his career um, excavating, if not in the Valley of the Kings, then in that general area, looking for you know sensational discoveries of high-status individuals. And he was he was very successful, um, not to the extent that you know he, he he became famous worldwide until the Tomb of Tutankhamun. But um, but but he had found an awful lot, and he does seem to have had a knack. For this kind of thing. So, what um, do you think the secret to his success was? Um, was he partly lucky? Was it partly the time he was he was searching in, or what was he an incredibly gifted archaeologist? Well, he, I mean, he was looking in. He was looking in very generally the right place. Um, the the monuments on the western side of the river in the Luxor area um, are all to do with. Um, Tombs and associated buildings, and all you know, collectively, all together, uh, the Valley of the Kings, um, the uh, memorial temples associated with those kings, and the and the non-royal tombs that sprang up all around that area, collectively make that perhaps the richest archaeological site in the world. Um, so, to a certain extent, um, without meaning to belittle Carter's achievements, if you put a spade in the ground in that area, there's a pretty good chance you're going to find something. Um, having said that, um, he he does seem to have had a knack for knowing where to look. I mean, he'd had a few seasons in the Valley of the Kings prior to finding Tutankhamun's tomb in November 1922, where he hadn't really found very much, hadn't found what he was looking for. But but he had he had honed in on the right area. He persevered, and 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 it's quite well known that um, his backer, um, the Earl of Carnarvon. Um, leading up to the 22-23 season had said, you know what, I, I, I don't think this is worthwhile anymore. I'm not going to put any more money into it. And Carter had said to Carnarvon, I am sure, I am convinced, in fact, if you won't put the money up, I will do it myself. We will find something. And that persuaded Carnarvon that, okay, let's give it one last go. Following this, the, the discovery is was really superb. Um, it, was a, it was a much, much, much bigger discovery than had ever been made anywhere else in Egypt. Um, and his his handling of that, his documentation of the um, of of the process of the objects is is I mean while it's not flawless, it's really as good as you could possibly have expected under extremely difficult circumstances. So I, I admire him very much um, f- for that, but also for for the work which is much less well known, which, which he'd done in the couple of decades leading up to that. He even at one point, after having discovered 
King Tut's tomb announced that he was going to find the tomb of Alexander the Great as well. So, you know, he's a, he's a, he's an important figure. Another favourite of mine is a guy called Walter Brian Emery, who, whose career was just beginning at the time Carter found Tutankhamun. So he was in the Luxor area around 1922 as a very young archaeologist. He made um, a whole string of important discoveries um, throughout his career, particularly at the site of Saqqara, which is a cemetery site associated with the capital city of Memphis to the north of Luxor, just, just in the region of Cairo, south of Cairo. This was the royal cemetery from the very earliest uh, times, beginning in the Second Dynasty and, and, then, and then on and off for much of Egyptian history. And Emery, a- apart from uncovering a number of massive tombs of the, the First, Second and Third Dynasties there, was particularly interested in finding the tomb of Imhotep. And his career came to an end. He, he actually died um, on pretty much on site at the dig house in 1971. But for the almost a decade leading up to that point, he'd been absolutely devoted. I think is probably his sort of fa- his final great achievement to finding this this tomb, the tomb of Imhotep. And he uncovered a massive amount of material. Um, much of which was much, much later than the time of Imhotep, and you might argue perhaps not what he really wanted. But he 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 made incredibly important discoveries in that time. He did commit in print um, to saying that, you know, he thinks, you know, the tomb of Imhotep will be discovered sort of, you know, next year. And he might have found it. He might have found it. When you say he might have found it, what do you mean by that? So he uncovered... Um, a couple of tombs in particular. What was happening, if I can just set the scene for mm-hmm. you quickly, is Im- Imhotep, whose name will be known to people now from the Mummy films, perhaps, but who uh, the character in the Mummy is is a, is a fictional character, obviously, but the name comes from a, a genuine historical individual who lived relatively early on in Egyptian history in the Third Dynasty. But his name survived uh, for centuries and as much as sort of two 2,000 years later, he became deified as a god. Imhotep became a god, a kind of legendary figure with his own temple and his own clergy and rituals and, you know, uh, a cult which many, many, many people were, were very keen on making um, offerings to. And Emery had noticed that in an area which was well known to be a cemetery of high status, important people of the Third Dynasty, there was an awful lot of cultic and ritual activity from exactly the later period when Imhotep had become a god. And that a lot, once he started digging, all of this material turned out to be in some way connectable to the cult of Imhotep. So the theory is maybe all these people thought that Imhotep's tomb was there and went to what they thought was his tomb and started making offerings. And sure enough, as he began digging, Emery found very large tombs of exactly the right period, the Third Dynasty, um, with Imhotep's name, you know, mentioned here and there, but from deposits from much later. And one of these monuments might have been the tomb of Imhotep. But what you really need in order to be absolutely certain is more or less a sign you know, on the doorway saying, this is the tomb of Imhotep. And he never found that clinching piece of evidence. But for tombs of that period, it's not that uncommon for Mastabas, this this particular kind of tomb, to be anonymous. So he couldn't have been sure 
and he never really asserted that you know that this one of these was was the tomb but I, I a lot of us i think think there's a very good chance that he might actually have been have found it without just without being able to prove it well, it's so tantalising, isn't it? It is. Um, you mentioned earlier Alexander the Great and Carter's quest to find his tomb. Um, obviously, he wasn't Egyptian, but he was. he's thought to have been buried in Egypt. Mm. He's one of the tombs that you look at in the book. Could you um, run us through where he might be or if his tomb is still um, out there? It was a great challenge for me to write about this tomb because... <laughs> Alexander's life, death, burial falls at the end of Egyptian history at a time when a lot of our evidence for this kind of thing comes from uh, classical sources, classical texts written by Greek and uh, Roman writers, often writing about, uh, say, you know, Rome or Roman emperors, but referring in passing to locations in Egypt or to the life and times of Alexander. So you, you have to take all these sources with a, with a pinch of salt. Inevitably, and you know, and they and they, they don't they don't always entirely agree with one another, which is uh, which is problematic. But there's enough sort of consensus there for us to say, I think, with some certainty, that although he died in Babylon, a long way from Egypt, his body was brought to Egypt by one of his generals, um, a guy called Ptolemy, who was one of a series of generals of Alexander's who, after his death, were vying for control of the empire. In Ptolemy's case, he wasn't interested in taking over the whole thing. He just wanted to take control of Egypt. Um, And he knew, as all of his rivals will have known, that whoever took charge of the burial of Alexander would kind of make themselves the heir, if you like. And um, to cut a long story short, Ptolemy kind of steals the body and takes it off to Egypt, which is where he he wants, you know, to take control. And he took it, first of all, to the capital city of Memphis, which um, meant travelling some way into Egypt, but Memphis was a good place for him to go because it was fortified. And Alexander had been very well received in that part of the world because he was responsible for ridding Egypt of the Persians. And the, the local population in Egypt hated the Persians and so were very keen on Alexander, who also very cleverly made it very clear that he was kind of in awe of Egypt and its monuments and its people's piety towards their gods. So so taking his body to Memphis was a, was a, was a good move. And we are told we, that probably he was buried in Memphis at least to begin with. Somehow his body was laid to rest there. But the sources are very vague. And if I'm really honest, there is not a shred of archaeological evidence for this at all. But, but there may have been some kind of a monument to house his body. Um, the later sources all tell us that Alexander was laid to rest in Alexandria, which is the city on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast, which he founded. But no building work took place on this new city at all until, until after his death. Ptolemy, by the way, was entirely successful in taking over Egypt, became pharaoh of Egypt as Ptolemy I, and founded a dynasty which would continue to rule Egypt for the next three centuries. Ptolemy is the person, along with his successor, son and successor, Ptolemy II, who, who build Alexandria and turn it into a, a fully-fledged city. And the theory is that um, it may well have been the transfer of Alexander's body from Memphis to the new capital city that, that kind of inaugurated the city. Thereafter, all we've really got to go on 
other classical sources. It's likely, in fact, that there were two tombs. Probably he was buried by either Ptolemy I or second in a, in a monument just for him. But Ptolemy IV, we are told, built a new kind of mausoleum-type monument to house the, the, um, the, the burial of the bodies of not only Alexander, but his successors, the Ptolemies, as well. Um, so probably Alexander's body was, was was buried twice in Alexandria, like I say. Another um, kind of towering figure as well as Alexander that I wanted to ask you about was Cleopatra. You also talk about where she might um, have yes. been buried and you suggest that she her, her tomb might now be underwater, possibly? We have a number of accounts of Cleopatra's life her final days. This is a well-known story, of course, which inspired Shakespeare and Hollywood and lots of other people. So that the story of her of her final days um, uh, with Mark Antony, their defeat by um, Octavian, who had become the first Roman emperor, subsequent absorption of Egypt into the Roman Empire, is is fairly well known. And those accounts make kind of passing references to Cleopatra having had her own grand monumental tomb built for herself and I think we can sort of infer even if it's not absolutely clear that this was intended to be a tomb for Mark Antony as well um and and the sources are fairly clear in telling us that in the last few days of her life when she was under siege uh, Octavian has arrived in Alexandria taken over um she she holed herself up in her tomb which would have been I think a very grand Monument, not of the Egyptian style, but um, um, a kind of mausoleum monument more in keeping with, let's say, the mausoleum of Hadrian um, in Rome now, something very grand like this. And the indications are from the text that this was probably in the area of the royal palaces. And we know that um, the royal palaces district, the area of the, the, the royal um monuments was on the coast essentially we also know that a few centuries after cleopatra's death um in i think the fourth century a.d there was an earthquake off the shore of egypt which had the effect of lowering the level of the seafloor by some three meters and that brought a huge amount of water washing over um alexandria and of course the the monuments on the shoreline um whatever might have been left of them at that point um would have been where they would would have borne the, the the brunt of this force, that is why so much of the most um, important, if you like, monuments of that era are now underwater. Um, in some cases, reasonably well preserved, but you know, in in sort of fragments, um, in ruins, and some pieces uh, of the of these ruins have been interpreted to, to be a good match for what we have in the classical descriptions. Um, So it is possible that we do actually have the remains of Cleopatra's tomb. Um, But again, we're very fortunate in Egyptology that we have an abundance of textual material. But until we we have a block that says the tomb of Cleopatra, um, we can't be absolutely certain. And I I should say, sorry, I, I should also say that there, there are there are theories. And I deal with these in the book as well that the tomb might have been elsewhere. Um, my view is that all the evidence points to it, it having been in that in that place, and if so, now lost. Of all the um, potential tombs that you look at in the book, which for you is is personally the most exciting? 
um, either because it's the most likely to still um, be out there or because of what it could potentially contain if it was found? This might seem like the most obvious answer, but I argue in the book that there is a possibility that um, the tomb of Nefertiti, Tutankhamun's probable mother, the probable successor of Tutankhamun's probable father, Akhenaten, as pharaoh in her own right, um, I argue that there is a possibility that... um, her tomb may yet still be out there. If it is, there there w- would be a good case to be made to suggest that we should expect it to be in, um, if not intact, then not completely and utterly violated. And that tomb, I, I, it would be, I think, you know, if, if this is what we're going to argue, I think that tomb would be in the Valley of the Kings. Um, there are believe it or not, still areas of the Valley of the Kings that have not been fully excavated. Um, so for a number of reasons, uh, the discovery of of, um, of a tomb of Nefertiti as Pharaoh, were it to be made, would resolve a number of arguments about that period, which is the most fought over period in Egyptian history. You know, if, if, if certainly if a burial was intact, it would be it would be a sensational discovery in terms of the material and also what it would do to our understanding of a very much contested period of history. That was Chris Norton. Searching for the Lost Tombs of Egypt is out now, published by Thames and Hudson. And that is all for today, but we will return on Monday with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.